Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, you'll notice a little bit of a different background. Well, I'm actually recording this from my wife's office at our home. She's a third grade teacher. So that's why you see a little bit of a different background as we're all virtual in today's world. We had a very special guest today, leading social worker Matt Chappelle, who's the manager of care coordination and a licensed clinical social work working for Stanford Healthcare. In today's episode, Matt shares about his 25 years of social work in the Bay Area, including serving the HIV population and doing a lot of mental health work before transitioning into healthcare, where he's worked for both Sutter and Stanford, and he has private practice. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, learning from Matt's journey in healthcare. And of course, you can check out other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us at pophealthpodcast.com, our YouTube channel, Stitcher, or Apple Music as well. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Pop Health Podcast as we celebrate Social Work Month in March. Before we get into uh, more about social work and your expertise, we'd like to get to know you a little bit. So let's start with a fun fact about you, maybe something outside of the workplace, uh, maybe a fun fact, a hobby, something like that. All right. Well, first of all, thank you very much. It's an honor to be asked to do this. And um, I don't know if it's a fun fact or not, but I was a competitive swimmer for many years. Um, I was a butterfly and breaststroker, and I still love swimming, even though there's no pools that are open up here. Yeah, man, that's, I was going to ask if you still swim, but unless you have a gigantic pool at your own home. Yeah, um, when, not when <laughs> well, I thought I got, social... COVID, I got my COVID pounds to prove it. <laughs> well, I thought social workers made a ton of money and you can have these multi, you know, million dollar pool. <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah. So when was the last time you actually uh, went swimming? It's been a year. Oh, man. So when February last year. So pre-COVID, where were you swimming? Uh, there's various pools in the area. Stanford, of course, has like world class pools, even at their gym. Um, but there's, uh, um, there's a place called Burlingame High School Swim Pool, which is very good, which is uh, just reopened. Um, and um, uh, in San Francisco, USF, University of San Francisco. Yeah. Okay, nice. Nice. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about your background, Matt. So you grew up in Michigan. Tell us a little bit about that. <sighs> Do I have to? Um, Michigan's a beautiful <laughs> place. I'm glad I grew up there. Um, I, I much prefer California. I will, I'll be honest about that. Um, but I grew up in Southwest Michigan. Um, I'm from a big family, a lot of nurses in my family. Um, and um, just, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, no worries. So you grew up in Michigan and uh, tell us about what made you decide as you're growing up to maybe you know, look at social work as a career, or if it wasn't formally doing social work, I know your family was nurses, like, what were you thinking growing up about, you know, kind of following that direction? I absolutely was not thinking about social work growing up. Um, I was thinking about psychology, however. Um, I initially wanted to be a histologist and study tissues and do research, and which is helps a lot as far as a social worker to be able to work in a hospital and understand a lot of the medical terminology and, and um, disease processes and things like that. 
Um, so I do think that that's, I just naturally have that interest. But I, uh, growing up, um, if you asked me what a social worker was, I probably wouldn't be able to answer that question. And um, I was much more on track to study biology. Okay, so tell us, tell us a little bit about that. So you're on track to study biology, then what happens? Life happens, and a lot of life happens. And in that, that is how I ended up um, um, as a doing social work. I um, uh, ended up working in the substance abuse arena, um, in the HIV arena, and um, long before I became a social worker, and it's just work that um, presented itself. And um, I guess the best way to say it is that there's a difference between a occupation and a vocation. And I learned that this is the work that I'm supposed to be doing rather than the, you know, playing with tissues in a lab or something. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, just knowing a little bit about your background, I mean, you were doing, you know, some very meaningful work in the 90s uh, when you're out in California. May I ask how you made the move out to California and if you started that type of work in California, if you actually started out in Michigan? Um, in Michigan, I worked with autistics. Uh, I did behavior plans. Um, there's Michigan deinstitutionalized in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. They, they deinstitutionalize a lot of developmentally disabled people. There's a high percentage there per capita, um, one of the highest in the country. And so there's a lot of um, people that were in group homes or sheltered work environments or um, schools and things that, um, so there was lots of, lots of my friends worked in that arena. They, they, they um, taught autistic kids and they were, they were, I had friends that were social workers and, teachers and stuff and so I ended up being interested in that and, and um, writing behavior plans for people for autistic kids um, which was which was a very interesting job to have um, jobs are not at that time there there wasn't like a plethora of opportunity yeah so you start that in Michigan how did you end up coming out to California so I came out to uh, California in the late 80s. And when I came out to California, I moved to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, um, I quickly got involved in the gay community here and in the HIV community. And I became an activist and uh, an AIDS activist. And that's honestly how I ended up doing social work. I uh, Someone had seen me working with a drug company, I don't know if I should say the name or not, um, trying to push their drug through the FDA, and um, which we ended up successfully doing, but thought I should, oh, like, hey, you should apply to work at this, the nation's first HIV mental health and substance abuse program. You'd be really good at it. And I'm like, oh, I don't think so. But then I, I relented. And um, that's how it really started my track into social work. So I started, you know, it was a milieu therapy and, and for pe the nation's first program, HIV, mental health and substance abuse. And we uh, saw a lot of people go through there, that program and get, get helped out. And the training for me, the clinical training was very good. So um, I just then moved to um, work for a program uh, called AIDS Health Project at UCSF. Um, 
kind of just expanding on on that work, working uh, with uh, high risk populations that were HIV positive, um, and then that ultimately morphed into working with um, complex mental health uh, patients. And then I went to school. Yeah, that is crazy. I mean, usually school comes first. So you were literally making history. I mean, I remember growing up in the 90s and, you know, serving the, the gay population, the HIV population wasn't as, uh, there weren't as many opportunities, nor was it um, as supported. So you've, you were there kind of, I don't know if grassroots is the right term, but you were there, the beginning is probably not the right term either, but that's evolved so much over the years. Would you, what's different today? Like from your lens, if you joined that type of work today versus, you know, 30 years ago, what would be different? Oh, a lot, of, a lot is different. Like I was just talking to a colleague of mine before this and then explaining how most of my friends are dead from that era. Wow. And that um, you don't, um, and that I didn't really think that to be around perhaps this long myself. And um, so, the, so back then it was, it was, it was a crisis um, very parallel to COVID actually. Mm. Um, if you, if, in some ways that um, you had people that were dying in droves, you had um, a community wanting some semblance of anything you could attach hope to. And um, now that you have um, effective medications that can um, that can pro keep, keep can sustain somebody's life a lot longer that um, can help stave off getting some of the opportunistic infections that you get with HIV. You have systems that were were ideas back then that you've seen grow into big big um, service provider um, lines and and um, it's it's quite different quite different than it was. It's still, it's still a highly prevalent disease. I mean, one thing that, one way to think about HIV um, is when you get HIV, you get a whole disease of society with it. And that's one of the things that's kind of similar with COVID, like with COVID, like there's, you can get a disease of society with COVID as well. Like I've certainly heard people tell me that they've been blamed for COVID if they're Asian, for example. Yeah. Like, that's a horrible thing. But that is very much, uh, very much similar to how HIV was. Wow, this I've known, I've known you for many years, uh, and I, I mean, this you probably have some amazing stories. I mean, even this is is pretty neat to hear about your background back in the '90s doing this work. So you're doing this work, this meaningful work, impactful work, and then you decide to go to school. What was the trigger that said, you know what, I should probably go to school for this? Well. <laughs> Um, I was doing it and yeah. people were getting paid a hell of a lot more than I was for the same work and they all went to school. So um, I was just fortunate to have places like UCSF that hired me without a degree yeah. um, and had that kind of confidence in my abilities back then and really supported supported the, me going back to school and things like that. I um, Like many... Uh, children of the 80s. I didn't have a whole lot of credits when I decided to go back to school in my 30s. Um, and uh, it was it was a it was a process that uh, really took a lot of dedication and work. Um, basically started from scratch. 
Wow, man. So you do that in your 30s. Uh, you get your uh, MS. You eventually got your MSW at San Francisco State, uh, if I recall correctly, just by uh, connecting with you prior and, and checking out your background. And you got it with a 4.0. So, uh, you know, you're clearly motivated and driven. The 4.0, I mean, I felt like I was a motivated college student, but I didn't get a 4.0. Like, do you mind me asking, is it just a self-motivation or was there any other outside influences that were really pushing you to get that MSW at a 4.0? I think one thing about social work is that it's it's one of those professions that is, is it's two things. One, social work means a lot of things. You can call a lot of things social work. You can do anything from community organizing to psychotherapy to being an activist to working in a hospital to there's to working with you know CPS or APS. You know, it, it can be a lot of things. And um, what I'm getting at is that it's the knowledge is cumulative. So I always want to continue to um, hopefully know what I don't know and learn learn what I what I need to keep expanding on and expanding on and expanding on. So um, that that um, it didn't really I love what I do. So uh, it didn't really require a lot of extra motivation. Yeah. I mean I did go to school. I did work the time all the time through school and everything and Maybe that's something about growing up in Michigan. You got a, a work ethic where you'll do stuff like that. But uh, you know, um, you know, it it really it really is a um, kind of profession where where it matters to keep it just learning and, and building on your experience and your knowledge base. And there's it goes in many many directions. It's a good profession for people that have too many interests. <laughs> nice. So. You, you finished school and then you ended up, you know, hopefully with a little bit of a bigger paycheck uh, now that you had that degree and you end up working for Sutter for many years. Tell us about that transition to, you know, go work for a big health system. So to be honest about it, I had a choice okay. to make and it was either to try to figure out a way to go to the Jung Institute and continue on the track of being a therapist or, um, Get a job where you have insurance. So I ended up. Um, it, it was a. It was a. Not a hard jump for me, to having medical, kind of medical knowledge already, especially from the HIV pandemic, to go into work in a hospital uh, setting. So I did both home health. I started out in home health with them. Went into hospice. Uh, for them as well. They, they put me in hospice and worked there for a while. And then I ended up um, doing med surge social work um, at their main hospital in San Francisco. Okay, awesome. So you're at Sutter for many years. You have insurance, um, which hopefully gave you some peace of mind. And you're there yeah. for many years. I mean, I don't have the exact number on my notes here, but I know it was well over 10 years. 14. Uh, I was there for 14 years. Okay, for 14 years up in the city, as they call it up north. Um, and then eventually you also decided to, you know, do some private practice work. Do you mind touching on that? Well, always, I've always had that passion and ability. Um, and it's, um, 
an area where I have fairly good skill. Um, and I, I just love doing private practice, but I haven't made it like my 100% going to hang your, your, all of your career on this. I think that um, it might sound a little hokey um, to say this, but, or corny, but the, I'm actually working where I'm supposed to be working. Like that's, if that was really the trajectory, I'd probably be immersed in that trajectory a lot, lot more than I am. But I do keep a private practice, and it is absolutely fascinating. It's wonderful. Awesome. So you have your full-time leadership role there at Stanford. Mm-hmm. You have private practice, and you're serving with groups like the American Case Management Association on their national board. Are you going to have time for swimming when COVID ends? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. It's, you got to take care of yourself, you know, especially through time. I think that people really, that's one of the things I think that hopefully the country really focuses on during this time that maybe if there's a, a quote unquote silver lining from COVID is that self-care matters a lot. You know, resiliency, you'll hear a lot. I can, I wonder how many conferences there will be about resiliency in this next year. You know, it's, it's really, really important. So, I think the, the, to me, if you want to sit back and really look at it, it's all patient care. So if I'm, if I'm like in a management position, it's still the main thing is like, how do patients get the very best care they can get? If I'm working, if I'm volunteering with the ACMA and, and doing work with the boards and things like that and helping putting on conferences, it's all about patient care. Like how do you raise the level of, of, of care for for patients, you know that's that's really where the rubber hits the road. So the way I see it, everything like every time you write a, a note, like you know, sometimes you hear people complain about charting, like well that's patient care, right? Like it's just part of patient care. So all of this cumulatively is is all patient care. It has nothing to do with me at all. So let's talk about patient care then. So you know, being a social worker, I. I'm not a social worker. My wife's a teacher in a low-income area, and she kind of does some social work, you probably can imagine. Yeah. Um, to be upfront, I, I'd probably break down, you know, if I was a social worker. There's a ton of stresses. Um, you can't solve every single challenge. So what are, what are some of the challenges that people may not know about? Let's say uh, a layperson. I mean, we're talking to healthcare professionals for the most part, but yeah, maybe what do people not know about the challenges you guys face or your team faces? Well, first of all, I think like I, um, for me, when I see a patient, it truly is an honor. And I think that for a lot of people in this, in our profession, in the caring profession, that that's how they interact with patients and that it's an honor. I get to do this. Like I get to, to go see a patient. I get to go talk to somebody. Um, like I said, it really it really has very little to do with me at all. But I think one of the things that um, people may not know about is that social work in a hospital setting is is very multidisciplinary. We're part of a multidisciplinary team, um, and we're going to go and see patients and really address as much of the social determinants of health or or psychosocial issues that you can address with a patient in this little blip of time that you have them in a hospital in a hospital setting. So it could be a lot of things. It could be anything from coping with a new diagnosis, for example, to 
fundamentally learning about like, oh, hey, I'm going to help this person get their disability. That's going to give. That's going to. That's going to help them a lot. Or I'm going to explain this hospice benefit to somebody. Or I'm going to do a substance abuse eval with this person. Or this person's suicidal. Let's help that person. Hopefully, they don't commit suicide. So, or or you know, this happens to me all the time. Um, like grandma breaks her hip or something, and they just wrap me around their finger in like two seconds. And I get to go in and talk to somebody about like, how do you set up um, for success at home? Like, 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 can you, can you get enough help to help you to, in order to um, recover properly or, or what about the long-term planning? So you, you get to do all sorts of things with patients. It's 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 um it's probably I'll I'll admit there's different there's differences geographically in different hospital systems where where case managers and social workers do do different things. So, um, but for me, like that's the that's the gem. The gem is the 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 way I get to interact with somebody. It's Okay, so doing a lot, like you said, uh, if you have too many interests, social work is for you, and you just named a lot of different things <laughs> that you can. Uh, that well, you, you can get help. everyone. Every case is like a new vignette. If someone comes into the hospital, their whole life comes into the hospital at that, and you're with them at that point in their in their life, right? So, so whatever could be going on could be all sorts of different things going on or not going on. So, not everyone needs social work. Yeah, let, and let's talk about that really quickly. So you said not everybody needs social work. So in a hospital setting, like maybe in, in simple terms, like who gets assigned a social worker? Like, how do you define that? Definitely anyone that has some sort of crisis going on is going to get a social worker. So it could, could be a psychiatric crisis. It could be a medical crisis where, for example, falls are, are a big example of that, where, you know, if you're... If there's a point in time in life where if you're at a certain age, you know, it only takes one fall and then it's a whole trajectory downward. You know, you've seen it a million times. Um, so it, it could be, it could be, a um, so certainly crisis or urgent situations will get attention. Homeless in California, we, homeless patients need to be seen by social work. It's a law. Yeah. So, um, but Somebody who, like, let's say somebody has a surgery that's an elective surgery and they have good support and, you know, they already did their disability work if they're employed um, and they already have things set up for themselves, then, then they may not need to talk to a social worker. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, you know, I've been in the industry for about 20 years and... Um, it's not always clear who should have a social worker or who should not, but I think you defined it with the crises statement. Uh, that was a pretty good explanation and one of the better explanations that I've heard. So um, what about a success? Maybe let's talk about your 20 years in a hospital setting. Is there a story or something you like, let's say you're talking to, you know, in the future kids about your career, um, you know, young kids, you're retired, you're talking teaching about your career, what's the success story you can share? Do you remember, without naming names, you know, anything you can share with our audience? Well, yeah, there's, there's, fortunately, there's success stories every day. So um, a good example would be, um, I have a social worker who works the overnights and had a patient come in for, 
having difficulty breathing, but it turns out really what was going on is that that patient person was in a domestic violence situation and he got to do a lot of counseling and help to help that person address their domestic violence situation um, at two o'clock in the morning, (laughs) you know? So that's a really good example of a success story that really what was going on was that that person needed help around an issue and it was just manifesting itself in a certain way. Or um, we had a, another patient, I'm just going with what I heard today. So, okay. so we had a patient yesterday that um, was a kid and a kid fell off his bike and um, hit his head and he's like three. And so the parents had ideas about CT scans and didn't want to do that. Um, and so they involved the social worker to talk to the parents and they were able to talk with the parents on, on the, on the parents level of understanding of things so that they understood that it's not a bad thing that they want to do a a scan of this, this kid's head because a lot can happen to a kid. And while, while that might be common sense for a lot of people, for others, it, it may not be culturally irrelevant. So, so that is another example just from, from um, yesterday. And I personally, it's really hard to sum up, um, you know, over 20 years of direct experience working in hospitals to, I've seen so many patients go through so many different things, anywhere from being able to, I guess talking to a patient about death is a really good example, because if you are not uncomfortable talking about it with somebody. Like someone might know, like I've had patients tell me like they know that they're terminally ill. Yeah. And they know that some people are, might be tiptoeing around talking about that discussion. But if I'm able to listen to them and meet with them on on the level where they're at and hear them out and hear about their ideas and fears that they have them or how they want that to go and be able to be witness to that. And maybe I know some, some services that might help guide them through that point in time in their life. You know, that's, that's a really valuable thing to a lot of patients. I've had, I've certainly had patients be very thankful that they were able simply to talk to a social worker about even substance use, for example, like somebody that, that can hear them out and hear what they're going through, what their experience is. And they may not, take make a change at that exact moment maybe three five years down the road that discussion influences it but i've certainly had people come back and like tell me and i honestly don't even remember talking to them sometimes that like oh yeah you talked to me and you told me x y and z and i heard that i didn't act on it right then but a couple years later like oh i want to come back and volunteer at your hospital you know, so so you just never know. You know, you never know that. You know, like we're all role models, uh, I suppose, on some level. But you're just being able to listen to somebody um, and meet with them, um, really, with and hear who who they are and where they're at with this situation in their life and this this blip of time in a hospital um, can can make a, a huge difference in somebody's care. And um, and perhaps maybe maybe in their life, I've certainly seen that happen. 
Uh, some good examples there, Matt. Um, as a reminder to the audience, you know, one of the reasons we're having Matt on in March is for Social Work Month. And Matt's talked a little bit about his background and there's social workers through all different, you know, industries. Um, I have a lot of friends, Matt, I'm sure you know, social workers who work with foster kids, for mm -hmm. example, and they're doing great work. Matt talked about his history with behavioral health and the HIV community, and we have hospital social workers. So I'm sure all of us listening um, no social workers or are a social worker. So Matt, what can people do in March to celebrate social workers besides, you know, I guess, thank you, right? Thank you is, thank you is good. You know, thank you is enough for a lot of people. Just thinking some sort of affirmation, some sort of acknowledgement that, that we appreciate your work. I think for most people is enough. Yeah, no, well said. Uh, so again, folks, in this month of social work appreciation. If you know social workers in your life, whether they're formal or informal, I encourage you to recognize them. Um, we're recognizing uh, Matt today and his leadership and his background. So Matt, appreciate you being on the show today. And then want to give you a chance to maybe to plug some of the groups you're involved with. We talked about the American Case Management Association. So uh, Matt, why should people, uh, or what's good about the ACMA? Why should people consider joining? So the American Case Management Association is primarily focused on um, what's called case management, and that's really a, um, a nursing um, ser service for, for fear of a better word, um, where the, their um, nurse case managers can become accredited, um, and it just raises the level of the ability of someone to coordinate everything that goes through um, with discharging a patient from a hospital from the minute that they walk through the door to um, doing what's called interqual or, or working with their insurance authorization to assessing what their needs are, to helping set that up, to making sure that that happens in a timely manner and a, hopefully in a seamless manner as much as possible so that they can get home and succeed. And then when they're at home, perhaps they have someone like, like your services come out and help them at home or home health come out and provide uh, nursing or physical therapy or something um, to to go along. And the American Case Management is a well American Case Management Association is a well-established organization. It has 33 chapters around the country. Um, we in California have a Northern California and Southern California chapter that play well together and work well together. And we have a lot of fun um, in order. But really, what we want to do is make sure that we get um, education out to people in the case management arena um, and that can help raise the level of, of care that we provide. Awesome, Matt. Well, thank, you, thank you very much. Uh, one of the reasons I reached out to Matt, actually, I saw him at an ACMA virtual event um, just, I don't know, a week or two, maybe just a week ago, two weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no worries, though. It was a SoCal chapter and you were supporting, too. So that was a cool, uh, cool thing that for you to do. Um, and Matt, you're the acting ACMA Northern California chapter president. I'm the outgoing. Uh, outgoing. Yeah, outgoing. So, Kathy Nipper Johnson is the new president. So okay. in April, I, that, it's been a great it's been a great experience. And, um, you know, that's, you know, I, I care enough about the profession to volunteer my time. Uh, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. And folks, uh, feel free to check out 
you know, more about ACMA. Uh, do you know the website, Matt? I don't have it memorized. <laughs> okay, no problem. Google Google American Case Management Association. Um, I, I can probably Google it really fast here. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to tell you to do that. I meant the audience. All right. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, um, you know, ACMA, um, we, we really appreciate um, the work that you do uh, and the, the services that you provide to patients. It's, it's invaluable. Like, like um, before this, like we were talking about, like that hands-on care is perhaps the most important care someone can get. Yeah, no, absolutely, Matt. So uh, folks, I know Matt is, uh, Matt's on LinkedIn, so feel free to, I hope it's okay. Uh, if folks want to keep tabs on what you're up to, to check you out on LinkedIn. And of course, uh, feel free to check out American Case Management Association. You can Google, of course, Stanford Healthcare as well to get those sites. Um, Matt, really appreciate you joining the show and honoring uh, social workers this month just by your presence and learning from you. And um, uh, best wishes to you. Look forward to seeing you to other ACMA events. And yeah. Um, yeah, and I hope you get swimming in soon. Oh my God, so do I. So is my waist, <laughs> my waistline. Uh, thank you very much. It's, it's an honor to talk to you. All right, well, thank you very much. And uh, folks, again, take care and honor those social workers in the month of March. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.